You know, we're told marriage is between one man and one woman, yet our guest today says the American view of relationship in a marriage is very suffocating for human beings. And this is part two of our unconventional conversation with Dr. Dana Hicks uh, about marriage and can we look at it in a different way. Dr. Hicks is an Amazon best-selling author who's written several books commenting on cultural change, uh, church planting, mission, and he's a former pastor and church planting leader. And he's telling us today about his book, The Knot, K-N-O-T, The Knot, How to Secure Healthy Modern Relationships While Not Being Tied to Marriage's Past. You know, marriage hasn't always been what it looks like today. We haven't always isolated ourselves into one relationship, but we were tribal beings that had fulfillment in many relationships. And maybe there's a better way to look at marriage today so we don't suffocate each other into divorce. After all, would you get on an airplane that said there's a 50% chance this is going to fail? No, but yet we jump into marriage with that being the stat we're constantly thrown at us that it'll fail half the time. Maybe there's a different way for us to look at marriage. So join me in this conversation. And as you do, would you consider right now going to my website, pastor-paul.com. You can just hit pause, pause the podcast, go to pastor-paul.com, subscribe for just as little as $5.99 a month. You can subscribe for more, but just $5.99 is a big help every month to help us keep churning free content and look at where the spirit of heaven is going today so we can chase it together. Pastor-Paul.com is the website. Will you check it out? Look at all the goodies on there and mostly say, we support your work, Pastor Paul, to tell the world that God is not mad at you. Is there a different way to look at marriage? Let's talk about it with Dr. Dana Hicks in part two of our unconventional conversation with Pastor Paul. And it's Dana Hicks, the author we're talking with here. And one of the things that's a focus of your book is marriage and relationships as a whole. And some of this mm. may be post-COVID for one, but it's definitely generational. These things are changing. And like I said, marriage hasn't been the same in the past. And it looks like it's not going to be the same in the future. Yeah, it's evolving a lot. And part of it is just the when you've got a failure rate of 50%, at some point people are like, yeah, I'm not sure I want to roll those dice and play those odds. And so the number of people getting married is declining. And what's that? So that makes it tricky when we talk about divorce rates. It's the number of people are, who are actually getting married is declining. The way they used to calculate divorce rates is they would go to the county records and they'd say, oh, look, they had 10,000 people applied for marriage licenses and 5,000 people filed for divorces. So 50% failure rate is because you don't have a crystal ball to know and right. when Joe and Ann go down and apply for their marriage license. We don't know if they're going to make it a year, 10 years, 50 years. We have no idea. So that's how they would calculate it. And uh, But then less people started getting married. So that kind of threw your odds off in terms of how you calculate those things when the marriage rates are going down and the divorce rates are staying the same. So it's hard to know those numbers of the divorce rate. But we do know that we do know that less people are getting married than used to. That's slowly been in decline, 
But the divorce rate actually is uh, the number of people filing for divorce is actually starting to go down a little bit. And I think some of that is that people are finding new ways to make their marriage work that would have been deal breakers in the past. And so they're uh, rethinking marriage. They're rethinking what that might look like and, um, and, and staying together in a situation that in the past would have been, would have just been a divorce. And isn't that good? There's this concept of family is the building block of culture and all of those things. And so it would seem to me Christians being open to finding ways to help people stay together rather than the bondage of marriage vows and things would be advantageous. People found new ways to stay together rather than the very emotional and expensive divorce path. Yeah. And for children, really, what's good for children is not necessarily to have two married parents, but for to have a stable environment. And so if we're really interested in children doing well, our question shouldn't be, hey, how do we keep people from getting divorced? Our question should be, how do we create environments that are stable for them? And that that would probably give us better outcomes in terms of families going forward rather than saying, we want this to be leave it to beaver family look just like that in the 50s. Seems like that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. You say online relationships are becoming a big thing, obviously. And again, this is a maybe partially some post-COVID, but we've always, you can't build a true relationship online through what we're doing here, but you would disagree with that, perhaps. I, I don't have a dog in that fight, but I just know that it's a definitely a pattern that's out there. Paul, you and I, as young as we like to think we are, we're not these digital natives. And they, these younger folks, God bless them, they they just think different than you and I do in terms of the way they understand these relationships. What kind of turned my thinking on it was I had a pastor colleague who was in his 20s Then we were talking about this and and he was he had been a youth pastor for quite a while and we were talking about online relationships and i was making fun of him oh, whatever you meet somebody online they're catfishing you or whatever you don't really know what they're like it's some 40 year old guy sitting in the basement with his mom's house or whatever and he said listen you may not think those are real or meaningful he said but when i work with teenagers they are very real and they're very meaningful to them and they take them very seriously, whether you do or not. And that's changed my thinking on it to think, if they think it's real, then I should probably at least give some credence to this and recognize that and it's not my cup of tea, but that's not to say that for other folks, it's very obviously a different kind of relationship when you're not in person. You, Paul, you and I have never met in person. We've just had a digital relationship, but, uh, but I like you anyway. I have business partners that I... Worked with for two years, and back in October, I saw them face-to-face for the first time ever. It was really odd to see them three-dimensionally and have legs. But where this really hit me, and I can remember in the pastoral world, people talking, should we have, should we stream our services? Should we not? All Mm -hmm. these things we're talking about, like how can you to people? And it was, for me, it was the the Manti Teo football player story, if you remember that one. Oh, yeah. He had the fiancé. That he had that had died, and then we found out like he had never seen this person face to face. And I'm like, 
and I knew my kids were using Snapchat and like, we don't really call each other ever anymore. We just Snapchat each other and things and all. And that's when the light really went on for me, like for the, this generation, both my kids are Gen Zers. It is as real as anything else. If you're texting, it is as real a relationship as anything else we've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Let me tie that all back to the polyamory discussion, if we could, too, because I, I one of the things I read somewhere that that really stuck in my mind, and this isn't in the book, but I was thinking about this, how especially as religious folks really get caught up in the sex discussion, polyamory. But I think that in, in a broader framework, what some polyamorous folks are trying to do is to say, we can't get all of our needs from one person. It's just it's an unrealistic expectation that we're setting. So how do we. How do we create a community around ourselves in which I get emotional support from over here and I get financial advice over here and I get a friendship over here and I have an activity partner over here and we have all these different people that play these different roles in our lives. And, and I was thinking about that thinking, I have friends, I'm thinking of one friend in particular I have in Portland who's been a friend since I was a teenager. And we're, we're in contact, we support each other, we love each other, we care for each other. It's not a sexual relationship by any means, but we're committed to each other in some kind of way that is more than just, hey, here's a Christmas card kind of thing, that they're an important part of my life. And even though we haven't set up any kind of formal commitment kind of thing, I think that, I think that there's something to that, that we can learn from that uh, I have friends that are here in Phoenix where I live that are close. I also have friends that are in Portland and in Boise where I used to live, you know, all over. And I think those are very real and meaningful relationships to me, even though I don't see them in person often. And they play a part in my life that I think adds richness and meaning to my life in ways that uh, the ways it might not other, I might not have in my life. I think for me anyway, that's a healthy way of seeing it, a healthy way of thinking about it of how these, how all these different people play roles in my life. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a million ideas rolling around in my head and I'm watching people <laughs> comment here in our life. It's obviously for those of us who are in this space that we're commonly calling deconstruction in some ways, sort of everything comes on the table and it seems like heterosexual sexuality may be the last thing, although clearly we know there are extremes that are still anti-LGBTQ plus or queer or any of those things. But yeah. yeah, an idea of a polyamorous relationship. And again, we would say, you look at the Matt Chandler thing going on, it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. That's that whole Mike Pence idea of not meeting with a woman. You can have emotional relationships with people that are very deep. And it mm -hmm. feels like this is a what we thought was a godly construct that you're telling us is a human construct that we need to learn to be flexible with to help humans function inside of it. Is that, is that a good summary of what I hear you saying? Yeah, I think so. I think what we're discovering is that when we isolate ourselves in one relationship, it can be very dehumanizing and very frustrating. It's really, and it's really the way in which we've constructed it, I think is self-destructive.
I understand if you want to be monogamous, and I think a lot of people do, yeah, you need to set up boundaries for what that looks like. But that doesn't mean just because you're sexually monogamous that you're not going to have friends, that you're not going to have emotional support from family members, that you're not going to have meaningful relationships outside of that. That seems, again, we used to live so communally, human beings, that is, Mm -hmm. in tribes and ways in which we could lean on other people for other things. And only in in recent human history have we had this sort of notion that we're going to be these autonomous little families that will be self-contained and have everything that we need within them, which is just a ridiculous idea. Uh, yeah, it's that, it, that focus on the family, traditional family, biblical family. And I always say to that thing, like, Jesus would have never known a family like that. <laughs> that whole thing about in my father's house are many rooms. That means you went and got your wife and you brought her back to your father's house and you lived with your father and the rest of that community. And I right. do, I have heard this from my Latin friends, particularly my Latinx friends. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, man, we're multi-generational living in, mm-hmm. in houses together and you guys are missing it. You're missing the value of having grandma well, and sure. grandpa and friend and aunt around when you're doing your traditional family thing. And so I, we may have missed something here in this focus on the family, traditional family idea. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? How much did purity culture impact this? I think a lot of us are starting to realize what purity <laughs> culture did to us to create trauma around sexuality, mm-hmm. human interaction. What how much do you put on this and attribute it back to purity culture? Yeah, purity culture, I talk about in the book. I think the biggest sleight of hand that has happened in Christian theology in the last few hundred years is this idea of purity culture, that all of a sudden we shifted what it meant to be a virtuous person for centuries in Christian history. To be a virtuous person was to say, I cared for the needs of the widows and the orphans and the immigrants in my community and the poor, and I looked out for the marginalized in my community. And that was the indication that you were a virtuous person if you did those sorts of things. And the insidious thing that purity culture did was it shifted what it meant to be a virtuous person to be purely about personal passions. So as long as I kept my pants on, I was virtuous, right? And And so that really allowed me to be pretty self-righteous about people who couldn't keep their pants on, number one. And number two, it was pretty simple, really. It's a lot easier to keep my pants on than to actually feed the poor, to be really (laughs) honest. True. And so I think it was, I think it was insidious. I really do. I think it was diabolical. And, and so now all of a sudden we've defined what it means to be pure and righteous and holy purely in sexual terms. Which, again, in in the scope of human history, in the scope of church history, is just bizarre, weird left turn that we took. And uh, and I understand it from the sense of it sure made things a lot easier and allowed us to then blame people, blame single mothers, to blame people who who didn't measure up to our standard of holiness so that we didn't have we didn't have to feel compassion for them because they weren't very virtuous. So. (laughs) We, it allowed us to step away from that as well. But yeah, I think that's just the beginning of it. Theologically, that's my biggest beef with it. Psychologically, man, when I know, there's people in therapy for this. 
yeah. trying to figure it out and trying to work through the baggage of, of what it means. You know what's interesting, Paul? I wrote this book. I wrote it for evangelicals, really, because I'm a post-evangelical as well. And I know how they think. I know that part of it is exactly this sort of idea of how purity culture has torn them apart. But what's been interesting to me is how it's how people who have no theological background have picked up on it, as have read the book and thought, oh yeah, this is really helpful. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting. So I reached out to a couple of podcasters that did polyamory podcasts. And I said, hey, listen, I got this religious book, but I know a lot of your readers probably have this religious background and they're really wrestling with this. And I had a couple of them reach out to me and be like, yes, this is a huge issue for us. Can you come on and talk about this? And I find that to be really interesting that Originally, my thought was that this would be an evangelical book, but it really, I think, has a broader sort of uh, appeal, I think, than just that. I think you're 100% right. And part of that, is, I tell people all the time, you could have grown up never going to a church, but you're still in America under the influence of Christianity. It, oh, it yeah. permeates our culture. And I think everybody grows up with some idea that I'm going to marry one person, we're going to stay together. And so offering to release the shame of that from people to, to look for options. What do you think about bigamy? Do you think we ought to look at bigamy as, a, as an option in the United States? Like multiple legal spouses, you mean? Is that yeah. what you mean? Yeah. I think that's outside the scope of public policy and <laughs> it's outside the scope of my book. I, I'm not sure I want to go down that road. I got you. That's how Utah, that's how Utah got to be a state was they finally gave up that. But uh, yeah, I, it it's, works. I tell you what, here, I'll say this. I, and I find this really interesting when, so one of the hats I've worn over my years in ministry was I sat on the board of a small NGO that did economic development projects in Africa. And so I've been to Africa a half dozen times or so. And of course, then you get to know people, church leaders and whatnot in Africa. And, and I'll never forget the first time we encountered people who had multiple spouses, guys that had multiple wives in Africa, which is not uncommon at all. And in fact, most cultures around the world, except for Western cultures, that's it's not at all uncommon to have polygamy, to polygamous marriages. And, but what I think surprised me was, of course, as an American, I automatically assumed, oh, this is about sex. This is why they want to have multiple marriages. The reality was when a woman became a widow in that culture, they didn't have a lot of rights. They didn't have a lot of options. And for a guy to take her in and marry her was a huge act of compassion and yeah. mercy to allow them to survive and thrive. And so again, from our Western lenses, we look at that as, oh, I can't believe this guy's got all these wives and what kind of sex pervert is he? But the reality is he's actually a pretty good dude that he's done. A, he's done a really good thing for this person, care for her and her children to take him, take care of them under her wing. And so to answer your question, again, this is form and function again. The bigger question isn't what's the best form. The bigger question is like, how do we create the most human thriving, create the most loving environments? Right. You know, and sometimes and that's, that's going to mean having multiple wives. <laughs> that's where my question was coming from. Is it wise for the government to limit that as an option? And why do we do that? Now, I understand in Mormonism, this has not played out well a lot of the times. And it's there's been rape sure. and child marriage and terrible things. Right. But right. I don't know that it necessarily has to be that way. If we just started taking misogyny and patriarchy out of things, 
and saying, find the best form that works for you, then maybe right. these things don't happen in the dark like that. Yeah. And we'll always be, we'll always want to have legal parameters around. I mean, you don't want to legalize rape, for example, Absolutely. or, you know, or non-consent of sex with minors, things like that. Age those of are, consent, those are, I think, is really important. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk form and function, we're talking about interpersonal relationships. Right. There's obviously, there's no form of a relationship with a minor that would be loving and thriving that would create a healthy situation. So we can write off that whole form, but I think you're right. I think it's fair to say, but let's look at some other things when we're talking about adults, when we're talking about consenting, when we're talking about these other things that, that, that are in place, maybe we should have a, maybe a little bit broader understanding of what that could entail. Yeah. And I think all of those are creating grace a space for grace for people. And I love that you said this has all, morality, purity has all become about now being anti-abortion. And it's, I always laughed, like we're wanting to ban books from libraries, but there's no more sex-filled book in the world than the Bible with <laughs> all kinds of outrageous sex that the Bible doesn't necessarily condemn. And what you said so there is when I say the command of the Bible, the never-ending command of the Bible is actually seek justice, not just take care of, but seek justice for the poor, mm -hmm. the foreigner. The Bible says outcast. I call that marginalized, the LGBTQ, or in our culture, the non-Christian. And then mm -hmm. the widow, as you said, that's the person who is prevented from the economic system, from having opportunity that's equal to others. And so... I think the widow is one we throw away sometimes that is actually very, very important that we're supposed to. Who don't have access to the justice system or the economic system. And so what I love about what you're saying here is turning us away from the idea of morality is not having sex with somebody you're not married to really finding solutions that work in interpersonal relationships in life and brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks. I love that. So the book, let me get my cap back here. The book is, I don't know why my thing does that sometimes. The book is the knot. It's a marriage book, but it's not like other Christian marriage <laughs> books. And the subtitle is how to secure healthy, modern relationships while not being tied to marriage's past. First, tell us where you can find it. And then who do you recommend the book for? Yeah, it's on Amazon and the paperback came out. It's on Kindle paperback and, and it just came out on Audible today after dealing with all their politics. That was a whole other story, but we finally got that up on Audible. So it's got an audio version as well. Yeah, like I mentioned before, I, I originally, I wrote this from Evangelical Framework because that's where I've spent the vast majority of my life and trying to think about people who think like me or thought like me, I should say. And what are some of the things that they would be wrestling with? What are some of the things that they'd be struggling with in terms of marriage and hopefully giving people a sense of freedom in that? That being said, like I say, I think I've handed this out to people with no church background at all, and they've found a lot of help in it just in terms of communicating expectations and ways that we think about having other people in our lives that that add meaning and richness to our lives outside of our primary partners and what that might look like. So very good. Again, the book is The Knot. Dr. Hicks, you can find 
on danahicks.blog. So you can see there it on the go. screen and live. Yeah, and, and there's a link. There's a link to the there. book on the website too. If you go there, you can find the Amazon link as well. And I'm assuming there's some blogs there as well. Yeah, good guess. Good guess. <laughs> <laughs> Dana, I think fascinating book. I think oh, timely, you, and I hope people get a chance to read it and start to think about some different options. So thanks for doing the work, and thanks for coming uh, to tell yeah. us about it. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed it.